One of the cool things about the Bible is the Bible says that God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. But the Bible also itself, it says in 2 Timothy 3, has been breathed out by God and so it's living. And as we read the Bible, it speaks life, it breathes life into us. And so if you haven't experienced that life, please continue to read and ask Jesus. If you're real, show yourself to me. All right, we are in Mark chapter 10. You're just joining with us. We're learning that Mark is presenting who Jesus is. You have to be clear on who he is. He's the son of God who came from heaven, lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross to pay for our sins and rose again. He's back in heaven. But then he calls us in the second half of the book to commit to the journey. In fact, a number of times the way in Mark he describes committing to the journey is to be on the way with him, to join him on the road. So the first step of doing that is through baptism. And so our passion, our vision, and most of our people are grasping this. Our church is advancing the gospel. That's our vision. It's not just from the pulpit. It's not just bring your friends so pastor can tell you about the gospel. It's go out and share and build relationships. Read the Bible with your friends. Start a Bible study. Listen to tapes. So we're advancing the gospel, but then we're making disciples who make disciples. So you're learning, what does it look like? If I am a forgiven follower of Christ, what's that going to look like? How do I live my life? And so last week and the week before, we've been going through chapter 10, and we noticed that discipleship involves marriage. Marriage is not a separate thing, and we saw what Jesus had to say about divorce and remarriage. We also saw that discipleship involves family and children. Last week, we saw that discipleship relates to our possessions, that Jesus cares about what we do with our stuff. And ultimately, discipleship is a surrendering of the heart to Christ. You, you heard a number of people say, it wasn't until I surrendered to Christ. But this morning, we're going to learn three more things about discipleship. And the next week, we move into chapter 11, where Jesus has conflicts with all of the leaders. But number one, we're going to talk about the rewards of discipleship. Number two, we're going to talk about the renewed mindset of a disciple, learning that it's not about me, but serving others. And finally, we're going to talk about the real reason for discipleship, and it's right out of the text. So let's start with the rewards of discipleship. Jesus has just finished saying, it's hard for a rich man to leave to enter the kingdom of God. So you need to leave and follow And so as Peter heard that, he thought to himself, well, we left everything. I quit my job. I have followed you, Lord. Us 12 have left everything. The last three and a half years, we've been following you around. Will there be a reward for us? I have Christians often, heard Christians often say, you shouldn't do things for rewards. That's selfish. If ever there was a time for Jesus to squelch that, then this would have been a classic time. Peter says, do I get any rewards? But I want you to notice Jesus didn't say, that's so selfish. He actually told him, yeah, actually, if you follow me, there are rewards. So we need to talk about that. So let's look at the passage, and then I want to comment on some things about rewards. Start in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. No, that guy didn't, that rich young ruler, he didn't, but we did. Matthew actually adds that Peter then said, 
So what's in it for us? But you'll notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke him and say, you self-centered thing. In fact, he says, verse 29, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake know what your reward is? He says, he shall receive a hundred times as much now in this present age. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms, along with persecutions and in the world to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So let's kind of think this through. First of all, the first point I want to make here about the rewards is that disciples are rewarded for service and sacrifices made, okay? So let's not, let's not go to extremes. So you shouldn't do things for rewards. You shouldn't do them only for rewards. But Jesus said to be rewarded for two things, service and sacrifice. So when you give to Christ, that's a sacrifice. It's an act of faith. I'm going to give some of my money to God because I'm, I'm acknowledging it comes from him. But he says, you'll be rewarded for that. You're laying up treasures in heaven. Particularly, one of the big sacrifices is there are often social sacrifices that we make. If you haven't learned this by now, many people, when they choose to follow Christ, do so at a great cost because either their parents begin to reject them, their children reject them, their siblings reject them. And so... There are times, and some of you can tell the story of how your family turned their back on you and said, what is wrong with you? Are you saying our religion's wrong? In some countries, they'll kill you. In some Muslim countries, if you were to say, I've chosen to follow Christ, they'll kill you. There have been many people in a married relationship who have gotten married and their spouse said, this isn't what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for a Jesus freak. I'm out of here. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. And so some of you have sacrificed painfully relationships. Many Jewish families, if their child professes to be a messianic Christian, they believe Jesus is Messiah, they disown them like a funeral for them. They won't speak to them any longer. Sometimes, as you saw in Syria, Christians have been displaced from their homes because they were marked to be persecuted for following Christ. And so there are many people who have given up many things for Christ. In addition to, I know some wealthy folks in our church who have sold houses and properties and things because they wanted to downsize and just, and realize I don't need all this stuff. Any sacrifices you make for Christ, Jesus said will be rewarded. But I want to add something here. We have to remember that our rewards come when the motives are right. Motives matter. Notice what Jesus says. He says, anybody who gives up, verse 29, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, for my sake and for the gospel's sake. Okay? There are many people who do very sacrificial things, but it's not for Jesus. We can't judge their motives, but you have to ask yourself, Am I doing this for Christ or am I doing this because 
I want the acclamations or the favor of people, or I don't want people to think I'm a bad Christian. So all of us have to go through that soul searching of checking our motives. So I, I want you to remember this. First Timothy four or First Corinthians four verse five says this: One day, God will disclose the motives of our heart, and then our praise will come from God. So don't just drop the money in the plate. Ask yourself why, right? Try to do things out of gratitude for Christ. Not to get a reward, not because people are watching. So in this case, the sacrifices we're talking about here are for Jesus, right? So if you stay after church because you volunteer to set up chairs, that's a sacrifice for Christ. You're doing it so people can come and hear the word of God. If you go on a mission trip, you know, it's not just things that we have to do here in the church, but sacrifices are rewarded for right motives. Third, notice that Jesus said, disciples are rewarded in this life, not just the life to come in this life. And I go, wait a minute, what do you mean here, Jesus? He says, if you give up anything, look at verse 30, you'll receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms. I gave up my house. You know how that's fulfilled? You tell me some Christian who doesn't have a place to live, who doesn't have another Christian who will take them in. You tell me someone who goes somewhere where they don't know anybody for the cause of Christ, who someone who knows someone in Christ will take care of them. So if you say, I lost my best friend because they turned their back on me, guess what? You got 100 best friends right here. My sister won't speak to me. You've got 100 sisters right here. My parents don't care about me. You've got 100 parents in Christ who care about you. I've known of people who have bought houses for other Christians, given cars to other Christians. Now, let's not go to extreme here. Don't walk out of the lot and go, which one do I want? Which one do I want? Okay, if not, you get the point here. Jesus is saying, if you give your life to me and you give up everything to follow me, I got your back. You got a hundred people who love Christ who will give you, and this is beautiful. Christians can go all over the world and say, hey, I found it. I'm in Siberia, but hey, there was a Christian family who said, hey, you come stay with us, which is also a way to think of your stuff, right? The Lord might tap you and say, remember that verse? I got somebody who gave up something for Christ who needs something for Christ that you might be able to, to share with them. But Jesus, Jesus throws something in there. This is why you need to read the fine print. Did anybody catch one of these things is not like the other? Houses, farms, brothers, sisters, persecution. <laughs> Persecutions? Wait, what? So this is important to understand. Discipleship is rewarded in this life, but it's costly. There's a reason why many people don't want to live for Christ. Because the Bible says all who live godly will be persecuted. If you live and speak and love for Christ, somebody's not going to like it. And whoever told you it's okay to just witness by your life and never say anything or do anything or stand out boldly for Christ, they gave you a, a, a lie. So we will be persecuted. <clears throat> now, thankfully, praise God, persecution in America is my boss laughed at me. My neighbor thinks I'm a creep or a fool or a moron. My mom and dad think I'm an idiot. Please, that's persecution. How about in Syria, where they're being marked out and tortured? In North Korea and in India, I, I, I had an Indian man stand right here about three weeks ago visiting from India. He goes, please pray for us. 
They're killing Indians over there. Pray that we won't be persecuted and beaten. Pray that we can get this building. So it's not just, oh, follow Jesus and everything's great, right? There will be times your spouse might misunderstand you. Your kids might misunderstand you. But what a blessing to go, hey, Jesus promised not only rewards in this life, but in the life to come. Now, real quickly, I want you to note something else about rewards. You may have been told that when you go to heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, you will receive crowns and rewards. But then you will take those crowns and rewards and cast them at the feet of Jesus. And I think that's true. Revelation 4 says this. But I want you to think about this. So what's that going to look like after that? So exhibit A, this young lady chose to stay single, chose to, so she could go to a very difficult place on the mission field and live a very dangerous, sacrificial life of which after 20 years she dies of malaria. This young Christian man lives a very selfish, worldly, American comfort, more stuff, more toys, more possessions, little commitment to his church, very little giving, just lives for himself. They both die and they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and she has amassed great rewards. And this guy, as Paul says, he's saved, but, but so as through fire. Is it going to then continue that way? Now we're just all equal. What do you think about what the Bible teaches about rewards? Rewards in the Bible have lasting significance. When Jesus said, there will be certain people who will sit on my right and my left, that's not a rotating chair. Everybody gets a turn. Now, I know that this is mysterious for some of you, but the Bible clearly teaches that there will be degrees of lasting rewards. You will be over five cities. You will be over 10 cities. You've laid up treasures in heaven. Nothing that you do for Christ on this earth will go unrewarded. This is why I say rewards are not Christian communism. In communism, go and pick all the potatoes you can and dump them in here. But at the end of the day, everybody gets one potato, now go home. That's not what the Bible teaches. God doesn't have to reward Christians, but he does. And these rewards have ongoing significance. Did Jesus not speak of this person being greatest in the kingdom of heaven? wait a minute, I thought we're all just going to be like, like this, right? Well, what if I'm jealous? You won't be. If you're there, you won't be because you're glorified. But there's a real truth to the idea that living for Christ is going to bring you lasting rewards. When will you get those rewards? The Bible calls it the Bema Seat of Christ. And this is what's so cool is we're, we're funneling out discipleship. It's not just coming from the pulpit. In your small groups, your leaders, and you can buy books, and there are good studies on rewards, and it might be something your small group wants to do. In addition to that, you can lose your rewards. In 2 John, verse 8, John said to the believers there, watch yourself so that you don't lose what we've accomplished, but you receive a full reward. I can't rest on my laurels and say, well, I used to live for Christ. If you stop living for Christ and you go back into the world, you lose your rewards what it says. doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It's not purgatory. Jesus is going to say, you didn't do enough, get out. But it's something to think about. The Bible says that one day we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not all Christians are going to be happy to be there. You know why? Because they didn't live for Christ. First John chapter 2 says this, 
little children, this is Christians, abide in Christ so that when he appears, you'll be confident and not shrink away in shame. If your parents came home and found you doing what you, you weren't supposed to be doing and not doing what you should have been doing, they didn't put you out of the family, but it wasn't a fun moment. And so the idea of rewards, what a joy to think that Christ would actually reward us in this life and the life to come because he's worked in my heart and I'm, and I'm following him. Paul said, I didn't receive the grace of God in vain. I labored. And so I want to encourage you, don't do things solely for rewards, but have a wholesome, balanced attitude toward rewards. Discipleship does bring rewards in this life and the life to come. And so this is what Jesus meant in verse 31. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus used that statement a number of times and the authors put it in different contexts. And so one commentary said this, that phrase is like plastic. It can fit different scenarios. You have to go, what's the context here? So in this context, the first will be the people who kept all their stuff. They're first in this life. They got all the stuff. They're the, they're the popular ones. They're the ones that the world notices. They're the one that everybody's jealous of and wants to be them. The last are the people who are poor, insignificant, don't have anything, like Jesus, who said, I don't even have a house. I don't even have any place to leave my head. Like the disciples who had given up their jobs and much of their conveniences. Right now, they're the last. But he said, in the life to come, those who are first, those who live for themselves, it's not just because you're rich. It's those who live for themselves and stockpile their stuff in disregard of others, you're in the back of the line. But those who sacrificed in this life will be in the front of the line. And I know all of us would just be, I don't care where I'm in the line, I'm just glad I'm there. And I agree with that. But we want to teach the whole counsel of God. And so the Bible teaches that disciples are rewards. Secondly, Jesus is going to teach the renewed mindset of discipleship. He goes, trust me, it's not what you're thinking. And never is it more glaring than right here. So one of the things that Mark talks about is that three times Jesus, in a short period of time, walks up to his disciples and says, guys, listen carefully. I know you're thinking I'm about to sit on a throne and be king and overthrow the Romans, but that's not what's going to happen. When we get to Jerusalem, they're going to beat me, spit on me, scourge me, crucify me, kill me. And then the third day I'll rise from the dead. This is the third time that Jesus does this. And this is the third time their response is staggering. Staggering. It's as staggering as if a husband's riding along and he says to his wife, I think I'm going to kill myself. I hate my life. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Two days later, I hate my life. I think I'm going to kill myself. Hey, did you remember that we have to pick up the kids? Third time, I think I'm going to kill myself. Hey, listen, if you do, could I have your car? You go, who would be that calloused? That's exactly what happens here. Every time Christ tells the disciples that he's going to die, their default is, well, what about me? Right? Which is really very convicting because it, it exposes our own natural sinful default to make it about me. 
But for the first time, Jesus is going to do something different. Not only is he going to tell him that he's going to die, now he's going to tell him why he's going to die. So let's look. Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. That's, that's important. I know Jesus, hold your hands. I know when you get to heaven, you'll see the footprints. What was that? Oh, that's when I carried you. But listen, Jesus always goes in front of us. The Bible calls him the author and finisher of our faith. He began it. He works it. He finishes it. So I look to him and I throw myself on him. I'm not just going, what are we going to do? And Jesus isn't going, I don't know. He's been there, done that. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He's passed through the heavens. He is our author, our leader. That's why we make it about Jesus. But meanwhile, we're down here going, like these guys, fearful and, and amazed. And so Jesus takes him aside and he says in verse 33, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered up. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit on him, scourge him, kill him. And three days later, he'll rise again. Now, one would think that they'd be like, Jesus, that's horrible. I'm so sorry. Or Jesus, are they going to do that to us too? Ready for this? But before we throw James and John under the bus, this is us. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying, Teacher, would you do for us whatever we ask you? I just told you I'm going to die and you're asking me for a blank check? Well, what do you want? Jesus says, what do you want me to do? They said, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. When the kingdom of God actually comes, Jesus, can we be the two most important beside you? Did they just do that? He tells them, I'm going to die. And they tell him, hey, listen, can I have your car? Right? This is sad. Now, what's interesting is most theologians believe that Peter discipled Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Right? Peter, James, and John were the, were the, were the three inner circle. Right? He got the 12 disciples, but then he took Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. But blood is thick, right? Peter and James are brothers. Why didn't they say, hey, Pete, come on. Let's go talk to Jesus and say, hey, can, since we're your three best friends, you know, can, can we have the three best places? They threw Peter under the bus, right? Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And what Jesus does here is he, he, he now introduces a metaphor for his death. I'm going up to die. That's like a cup. I'm going up to die. That's like a baptism. Now, here's what he means by a cup. In the Old Testament, Isaiah described the cup of God's wrath. It's a metaphor. God is angry at sin. He's not granddad in the sky going, children, more candy. He loves people, but he hates sin. It brings out a holy wrath towards sin. He's not wrathful. It's not part of his nature. It's a response to sin, and it must be satisfied. He must pour out his wrath on sin. And so it's, it's this big cup of wrath. I don't even want to get near that cup. I don't want a drop of it on my skin. But Jesus knows that he's going to drink of the cup of God's wrath fully. He's not going to sip it. He's going to 
He's going to take every last drag of my sin in his body. As he hangs on that cross, he's going to bear my hell and your hell. He's going to drink the whole cup of God's wrath. And then he's going to say, it is finished. He's not going to say, I did my part. Now you go to purgatory and be a good person. And then, No, Jesus paid it all. So he says to the disciples, are you able to bear the wrath of God? And then he says, are you able to be baptized with what I'm about to be baptized with? They were probably going, oh yeah, we already were. Remember John the Baptist? He baptized us. He baptized. No, no, no. This is a, he, now he's using baptism metaphorically. In another passage, he calls it the baptism by fire. He's going, I'm about to be tortured by God for the sins of the world. You, can you do that? And they go, yeah, we can. So look what they said. Lord, we are able. I love Jesus' compassion. He doesn't lecture them. He goes, well, the cup I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I'm baptized, you'll be baptized. Well, what did he mean by that? You're right. You're going to die. And that's what happened to them. We know from church history, both James and John died a brutal martyr's death for Christ. But they didn't die for our sins. And after hearing this, the ten became indignant. Jesus said, I can't, verse 40, I can't give you that seat. It's to those for whom it has been prepared. But mark this down. Somebody's going to sit there. It's not going to be you or me. Maybe it'll be St. Paul, but somebody's going to sit there because of their service for Christ. But here's where Jesus introduces this renewed mindset. He says, guys, we've got this dangerous dis- default. We always go back to us. It's always about us. That just happened. I'm going to die. What's in it for me? And this is very, very convicting. Every time my TV goes off or my computer goes off, it has to go back to the default, right? You have to re- Every time I get up, it doesn't take long till I'm back on my default. Me, 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 right? And yet we mask it well. So Jesus is teaching us this new lifestyle that we have to embrace and learn. He says in verse 42, you know that those recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them, but it's not so among you. See, this isn't how we roll. That's how the world rolls. You want to be great? Power, fame, money, people under you. Jesus says, no. If you want to be great, which he doesn't say, you shouldn't want to be great. He says, learn to be a servant. Learn to be a slave of all. So the renewed mindset of a disciple is a servant heart lifestyle. That doesn't happen overnight. That's where I learn, dad, when I pull into the driveway, I'm not there for mom to coddle and comfort me and get my slippers. I'm not there for the kids to be quiet so I can have some time out. And that when they come to me and say, we need to go and pick up some poster paper, that's not time to scream at them, you idiots, why didn't you plan for your project a long time ago? We are called by Christ to serve, to have a servant's heart. Now, I'm not suggesting that you don't discipline your kids or let them face the consequences. Don't go to extremes, but you get it, right? I'm supposed to be serving my wife, serving my kids, and, and, and here, particularly serving other Christians. The easiest part about getting married is when you promise, I promise to love and serve my spouse. That was the easy part. You just said it. But are you doing it? 
And so this is a powerful passage, the lifestyle of Christians. The lifestyle of a disciple is learning to serve others, not because they deserve it, not because, oh, it's fun, but because Jesus did it, and I'm a Christ follower. A disciple is a forgiven follower becoming like him. This is radical. So ask yourself, you know, when the service is over and I bolt out of here, could I, could I stack some chairs up? Well, you know, I, it's not my role. Well, I, I don't do nursery. You know, that's not my gift. Nobody has a gift of changing diapers, right? It's service, serving, humbly serving. But this is really important. For the first time, Jesus reveals the purpose of his passion. Verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. Oh, that's why you're dying. To give your life a ransom. We've all seen ransom movies, right? But we need to be very clear here. Who did Jesus pay a ransom to? One of the church fathers lost his way and began to teach that he was paying the devil. How much do you want, devil? I'll keep them all in hell unless you die. Okay. He wasn't paying the devil. He was paying God. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, the Bible says, it shall die. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Jesus went up to that cross to pay a debt that he didn't owe so that I could be forgiven of a debt that I couldn't pay. Amen? He paid a debt he didn't owe, and I owed a debt I couldn't pay. And that's why we Christians sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. What a blessing. Now, for those of you who are going deeper in the meat of the word, who did he pay a ransom for? He says, I died to pay a ransom, verse 45, for many. You go, what do you mean many? Paid it for everybody. Well, not all Christians believe that, and there is some merit as to why. Many Christians believe that Christ, the extent of his sufferings was only for those who were going to be saved, only for those whom he had brought to himself, called limited atonement. Now, you might say, I don't believe that. Well, just I'm not saying everyone has to believe it, but there is some merit to it. There's passages like this, right? But on the other hand, there are passages that say Christ gave his life not for us only, but for the whole world. So it's just something for you to think more about. Some have argued, why would Christ die for someone and pay for them if they're going to have to pay themselves? That would be unjust of God to demand a second payment when it was already paid for. So at least you can understand why some hold to this limited atonement. Well, how do you witness to people? Well, you don't have to, you, you just say, Christ died for sinners. Whosoever will may come. You don't go, I don't know if Jesus died for you. Just come. Jesus said, no one who comes to me will I cast out. But this is really important. The reason, the reason, reason, reason why we do this is out of gratitude. We pattern our lives after Christ because of his passion. I don't serve my wife and kids and other people, hopefully because I have to, but because he died for me. And Philippians chapter 2 says, have the same attitude that Christ had. Even though he was equal with God, he humbled himself. He came down here as a servant. He died on the cross. And therefore, God highly exalted him. So we then should serve others as well. Here's where we come to the, 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 the pinnacle. 
Here's the, the consummate disciple, a blind man. The three things, we saw the rewards of discipleship. We then saw the renewed mindset. I'm going to learn to serve. I'm going to get plugged in. I'm not just going to show up on Sunday. But third, the real reason. So look at this. They came to Jericho, and as he was going out from Jericho with his disciples, there was a great multitude, and there was a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. What was he doing? Sitting by the road. See that road? He's not on it. He's sitting by the road. And you know what? Churches in America are full of people sitting by the road. Some of them aren't even by the road. They're up there in the mountains. But sitting by the road... At the end of this passage, it says, and he joined him on the road. So I want you to notice a couple of things about him. He's sitting by the road, a blind beggar, and he hears that Jesus is coming by. And he begins to cry out, Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. He's calling Jesus the Messiah, son of David, Messiah, Messiah. What just happened? The blind man sees better than those who can see. His disciples can't figure out who he is. The blind man's going, I can see clearly, like a laser. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. But watch what happens. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. He's lucky it wasn't in Philly. Stupid, shut up, man. I'm going to beat you, right? You would think he would have gone, okay, so I'm not going to say that anymore. This dude was bold. This dude was desperate, and he was vocal. And the more they tell him, shut up, look what it says. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he began crying out all the more. Listen, he gets it. He's done with what people think of him. Can I tell you this? The sooner you're done with what people think about you, the happier and freer you'll be. Don't be rude. Don't take your filter off. But at the end of the day, the biggest question is, what does he think? Not what do we think? And so he's like, you can yell all you want, but I want Jesus' attention, and I want to please Jesus. That's so freeing. Paul said, if I was trying to please men, I wouldn't serve Christ. But notice what happens. Jesus stops in his tracks. When you're desperate for Jesus, he'll stop in his tracks. And he says to the man, what do you want me to do for you? That's exactly what he wanted. He asked Peter, James, and John, what do you want me to do for you? They're like, we want power and fame and glory. Here's the consummate disciple. He's not like, give me money, toys, fame, and glory. He goes, I just want to be able to see. Now watch this. So Jesus heals him. I want to regain my sight. Jesus heals him, and he goes, go your way. Your faith has saved you. You're forgiven, and now you can see. Go your way. You know what? There are too many Christians in America. That's their favorite verse. I get forgiven, and then I go my way. See, you wouldn't want to be you. Why aren't you in church? Why aren't you getting baptized? Why aren't you reading your Bible? Look what it says. Immediately he received his sight and began following him. We have plenty of people who are, oh yeah, I'm saved, and they've gone their way. But the mark of a real disciple is they begin following him. They begin changing. They begin growing. They begin repenting. They start to show signs of obedience. They're less worried about what the fans think and more worried about their Father in heaven thinks. And let's pray that God will raise up a church full of Bartimaeuses that will go out there and say, I'm sorry that you, know, you don't like me and I'm not going to be obnoxious, but I'm following Jesus and I would love to have you join me. Last thing I want you to think about is, what was the real reason that he did this? 
pretty basic. You know why he was so sold out? Because he was touched by Jesus. It's that simple. He was touched by Jesus. Have you been touched by Jesus? Has he reached down and rescued you from hell? Has he picked you out of the, the pit of depression, the guilt and shame of your sin? Has he done something merciful and marvelous and miraculous for you? He began following him on the way. I thank God many of you are following him with all your heart. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord in hopes that our kids like, like Riley will follow in our, in our footsteps. But we have enormous potential to be used by God here as followers of Christ. And we'll be rewarded one day. But in the meantime, may God give us a servant's heart, a sacrificing heart for, for Christ's sake. Maybe people will rush up after the service and say, hey, when, when's your next baptism? Count me in. I'm tired of standing by the road. And then let's invite anyone who has not yet joined us on the road. Make your commitment to Christ. What are you waiting for? Why won't you surrender and believe and receive Christ's forgiveness? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for a wonderful day of joyful worship and exciting testimonies. Thank you so much, Jesus. We were blind like the blind man, but now we see. What amazing grace. Help us to go out trusting you and grateful. Thank you, Jesus, that you go before us, you died for us, you drank the cup of God's wrath so we don't have to. There's no condemnation. We're forgiven. May we go out and love our family, serve and forgive and help others to find you. And if there's anyone here who has not come to you before they leave today, may they make that decision to become a Christ follower. Thank you, Lord. Bring us back tonight to celebrate and hear about what you're going to do here in the near future through our church as we expand and grow and, and see your work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.